And of course, we're in the middle of a Lenten series, aspects of worship that draw us closer to God. And we've been in Psalm 96 the whole time. I hope you're not tired of Psalm 96 yet. I think Psalm 96 has a lot to teach us about lots of different aspects of worship. And today we'll take a look at the first uh, six verses, though I'm really going to key just on one one word out of all those six verses, but I'm not going to tell you yet what that is. And uh, I'll read this passage for us. I hope you'll follow along in your Bible or your bulletin insert. This is where the psalmist says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. As we begin this sermon today, what I want you to do is to think about things you're preparing for. You know, at certain stages of our lives, we find that we prepare for different things. Some of our students here today, for example, are maybe thinking about preparing for a test or an exam or a term paper or a book report. Uh, Some of our younger people are may be preparing for marriage. I don't know if anyone is doing that or not. And then uh, there are others, others of us that are preparing for a, a first child or another child or a, a grandchild. There are others of us that are preparing to educate those children, which our pocketbooks truly love. And then there are those of us who are, are preparing for other things. Uh, Maybe retirement. Hopefully we've all prepared for eternity. There are all kinds of things for which we need to prepare. I know for my own wife and myself right now, uh, as most of you know, we were given the opportunity to buy this old house in Bon Clark in our denominational assembly grounds. And the contractors are really uh, making good time and... We're under the pressure to be prepared because there are all kinds of things. I've been telling them all along, you know, you need to keep working. You need to make progress. And as the electricians show up and the plumbers, they're going to need fixtures to install. And they're going to need light fixtures. And they're going to need all of these things. And and all of a sudden, we're feeling a little under the gun, like we're not as prepared as we thought we were. And uh, we need to be prepared. You know, we've had... 12 months to be prepared, and we're still not prepared yet. I just wonder, in all those things you were thinking about that you need to prepare for, uh, was worship one of them? Think about it this way. We have six days to prepare and to be ready for worship when we 
come into this sanctuary on the Lord's day. And then in the first part of the worship service, we supposedly are preparing even more. In our 11 o'clock service, it's under the heading, The Worship of the Lord. That's a time of preparation. That's what a seminary professor of worship will teach you. The first part of the service is all about preparation. Preparation for the Word and preparation for the sacraments. Preparation for the Word, the proclamation of the Word. Preparation for other prayers that will follow. And you know, if we think about it, it's called preparation because we're not really ready. None of us are ready for the high experience of public worship. I'm not ready and you're not ready because most of the time we come in here with the cares of the world uppermost in our minds. We have something on our minds that's bothering us or something going on in our lives and we're not really focused on God. Instead, we're focused on self. Essayist Annie Dillard says we're like children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT in order to kill a Sunday morning. In his book, Beyond the Worship Wars, Tom Long puts it like this, We worshipers are often oblivious to the fact that we have come close to the edge of a great abyss. He says, we talk about seeking God's presence and and we even pray those words with hardly a thought of what we're saying. Forgetting that the one whose presence we so casually invoke summons the creation out of nothing. Commands the moon and the stars to sing. Shatters kingdoms and brings tyrants to their knees. Indeed, we forget, as Hebrews 10 reminds us, that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, lest you think we'll never make it to the text today, we have to notice one little word in verse 2. That word is bless. Where the psalmist says, Sing to the Lord, bless His name. It all sounds so innocent, but that is a somewhat pregnant term in the Hebrew. The word is barak, which, which means to bless God, to praise Him, but it literally means to adore with bended knees. The psalmist is basically telling us to adore the living God. John Calvin said that the first thing in religion is the proper adoration of God. And then the Westminster divines come along and teach us in the shorter catechism that man's chief end is to what? Is to glorify God. And this psalmist is teaching us that we are to bless His name. Now three weeks ago in the first sermon in our series... The sermon dealt with why it is important for us to sing. The psalmist tells us three times to sing to the Lord. And and we learned that day that we're commanded to sing. That's one reason we sing. We also sing because God is great and greatly 
to be praised, and we also learn that our songs of praise are literally sacrifices of thanksgiving to our God. And I'm giving you this little review in order to see that this sermon today is not about the same thing. Yes, it's important that we sing, and in our singing we can and do give adoration to God, and that's great. But when we consider this adoration within the context of the sanctuary, the psalmist mentions the sanctuary there in verse 6, and when we think about the meaning of the Hebrew term and how it speaks to adore God with bended knees, you can see how I'm leaning toward prayer, and specifically toward the prayer of adoration and as it's found in the preparation of our worship service. The songs of praise we sing, the prayer of adoration, as well as the prayer of confession, all of that prepares us for the proclamation of the Word, for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper on the day in which uh, we observe it. And this time of preparation should help us leave all of those cares, all of those worldly distractions behind, and we're able to focus completely on God. Or that's what's supposed to happen. That's the way it's drawn up. That's what's supposed to take place. I say that because true adoration, I believe, is difficult for you and me to accomplish. And the reason I say that is because it's been my experience. I pray a lot of prayers, and I go where a lot of prayers are offered like to meetings of presbytery and meetings of synod and, and, and prayer team meetings and Sunday school classes where prayers are offered. And it's great that prayers are offered in all of those places, but most of the time we hardly praise God at all and immediately go to our to-do list of petitions. So that's what the first part of this service is all about. It's to guide us in our praise. It's to prepare us for our worship. It's to take the focus off of ourselves and place it on God where it rightly belongs. It's to remind us why we worship this all-powerful and creative and loving God. Its purpose is to help us to see that God is God. That's why we use certain hymns or psalms like we do in the opening part of the service. Just think about some of the hymn titles that we typically sing for the first song in the service. Uh, Titles like, O Worship the King, All Glorious Above, or Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise, Sing Praise to God Who Reigns Above, Holy holy, holy, or like we saw today with Psalm 92, it is good to sing God's praises. Then we move to the prayer of adoration whose very purpose is to give God the glory due unto His name. This is when we bless His name to use our psalmist terminology. Philip and I should make hardly any petitions in the actual adoration section of this opening prayer. And I was glad to see that my son listened to the sermon in the first service today because there weren't any petitions in that part 
of the prayer of adoration. The petitions come in the prayer of confession. Rather, a sense of awe and and wonder should characterize our adoration of God. If you've ever been taught about prayer using that acronym, ACTS, A-C-T-S, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, uh, this first part, adoration, is what we're talking about. And again, we need help with this. And that's why the Psalms in general, as a book of the Bible, are so helpful in teaching us uh, to properly adore God. Because the psalmists are often filled with awe and wonder at who God is and and what He has done and what He's doing in His world and in their lives. And that's what adoration is all about, who God is and, and what He's doing. I want you to listen to some selected verses straight from the psalms and how the writers are adoring God for who He is. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. He is girded with strength. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His, also the sea is His. For He made it, for His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and terrible name. Now granted, we've been using a lot of words to talk about our adoration of God, including words of adoration straight from Scripture. But hopefully, these verses from the Psalms have helped us to see that adoration is not so much about our words, it's about our posture, our posture that we have before God. It's about the attitude of praise we bring to Him. It's about our sense of of wonder and amazement that that God, the creator of the entire universe, is, is willing to condescend to us and that He seeks our praise. It's this attitude of wonder that we can see, believe it or not, in our denominational standards in the directory of public worship where we're told the prayers of public worship should include praise and adoration to God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit according to His glorious attributes and His wonderful deeds. You see, once again, it's all about who God is and what He does. And that's in our denominational standards because we can see this same attitude, not just in the book of Psalms and not just in other places in the Old Testament, but we can also see it in the New Testament. Time and time again, I'll give you just one example, Ephesians 2, 
where Paul reminds us about how we're dead in our sins, but that God made us alive just when we were dead. Paul says there, out of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ, for you have been saved by grace, that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You hear that sense of awe and wonder? The immeasurable riches of His kindness and grace toward us in Christ Jesus. We adore this triune God, not just because of His immeasurable grace, but because of His immeasurable love and and peace, His unsearchable righteousness and holiness, His glory, majesty, honor, and power, and on and on we could go. And we see this attitude not just in Scripture, but we also see it in some of our most beloved hymns. Think of Robert Robinson's hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. In his first stanza, and, and it was at age 23. This is how young he was when he wrote this hymn. Now, granted, he might not have run the race with perseverance all through his life. He had some problems with his faith later in life. But at this young age... He already understood that we praise God with an attitude of of praise, a, a posture of prayer and adoration. And listen for his amazement at all that God was doing. In fact, it might help you just to turn that to that hymn in your red hymn book, hymn 379. We're not going to sing it till a little later in the service, but you might want to follow along with me. On this first stanza, 379. Look at what he says there. Come thou fount of every blessing. God is the source of every blessing. And it's just like a fountain where those blessings overflow each and every day. Just like we sing in the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's the same idea. And when he thinks of this fount of every blessing, he wants God to tune his heart to sing God's grace. You see, we don't know how to worship God properly. And and our hearts need to be changed. They need to be tuned to help us to see God for who He is and what He's done. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Think of Lamentations 3 where we learn God's mercies are new each and every day. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise, not just quiet praise but the loudest praise we can make. Teach me some melodious sonnet. I don't think many of us quote sonnets much anymore, but it's my understanding they're about a particular theme a sonnet is. All right, Teach me some melodious sonnet. What's the theme going to be? Sung 
by flaming tongues above. That points us to the book of Revelation. Revelation 4, for example, where we see holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's the kind of theme we have for our sonnet. God's holiness, adoration and praise. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it. Mount of God's unchanging love. His love that is ever gracious. His steadfast love that endures forever from generation to generation. That's the kind of attitude of posture of praise and adoration that we can see in a hymn like this. But we especially see this attitude and practice in Jesus. We know how He felt prayer was terribly important and the reason we know that is as we read through the Gospels, we see where Jesus leaves very successful times of teaching, huge crowds, and He goes off to to be in prayer with His Father. Or He leaves villages when it appears, at least if you read between the lines, that some kind of great revival is taking place. And the whole town has come in and Jesus leaves and goes off and prays with His Father. And when He teaches His disciples about prayer, we can see how our times of prayer, especially as individuals, are part of an intimate relationship with God. It's in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 where Jesus is comparing and contrasting the the religious people who like everybody to see and to know that they're religious. Jesus says, you know, those kind of people pray out in the open. He says, they've received their reward, but you, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. But it's not just that. He also teaches them and us the importance of blessing the name of God, the importance of praise in our prayers. When when His disciples come to Him and say, Lord, teach us to pray, what does Jesus tell them? He says, pray then like this, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And and those sound like petitions to us, and they are to an extent, but what are they about? They're about God's glory. That's exactly what Jesus is praying about. And if you've wondered what you really mean when you say, hallowed be thy name, it's that God may be treated with the highest honor possible. That He is really God. And we are far below Him. But also notice Jesus' first two words. He he begins that model prayer by saying, Our Father. That word our shows that we have a relationship with God. And it's not just a relationship with God. It's a relationship between all of us and Jesus as our brother. But the point is this close relationship, so close that we call this creator of the universe, we call him our father, our daddy in Aramaic. 
This is why prayer is part of worship and why it helps us to grow closer to God. It's the kind of conversations fathers have with their own children and children with their parents. That's the way we grow closer to our families. Those conversations around the table or in the car when we're traveling somewhere, or in the family room at night, in the den, or whatever it happens to be, sitting around and catching up with one another and talking about what's really important in our lives and in our futures. Prayer is much that same conversation, but the way to always begin is where the psalmist begins. And it's where Jesus begins with the praise and adoration of God. That's why the psalmist says, Sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day, and may we do the same to His honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.